0: Welcome to the WCAPS Five podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Five, vision, impact, voice,
1: We're super excited to have two awesome women join us for the first, I guess, installment of the Defense and Intel Working Group of WCAPS. We're really excited to bring to our working group members, but also the rest of the community, the various ways to really get started and establish a career within the intelligence community. So we're going to start in general. So WCAPS and the Defense and Intel Working Group is is a new working group. And Carolyn and I have had a couple meetings with our working group members, and we've seen that many are either transitioning into wanting a a career within the IC, or just kind of trying to figure out where might they fit, particularly those that may not have um, educational experience that directly, in their mind, relates to kind of that established career. So we'll begin with Ms. Raina Epstein. So Ms. Epstein is a retired CIA executive with more than 30 years of experience as an analyst, briefer, and reviewer of intelligence products. She spent five years overseeing, producing, and reviewing material for the intelligence community's premier intelligence product, the President's Daily Briefing, including as Assistant Deputy Director for Strategic Planning, President's Daily Briefing for the PDP in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and as former President George W. Bush's Daily PDP Briefer. She was also a member of the Senior Intelligence Service and a recipient of the CIA's Distinguished Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. So welcome and thank you.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Awesome. And then Katrina. So Katrina Mulligan is the Managing Director for the National Security and International Policy at American Progress, previously having served at DOJ, ODNI, NCTC, and the White House. So super excited to get her perspective of kind of that gradual um, introduction and I think kind of merging <laughs> of politics and intel and all of the various different ways you can kind of get your feet wet in this in this arena. So welcome ladies. Again, and I don't know if I mentioned this before, but this is actually in collaboration with Steady State. So as we're looking towards November and looking at an election year, really excited to see how WCAPS and our members can collaborate and really make a difference this year. So Katrina, if you don't mind, can you give us just a little bit about Steady State and, and what their mission is. Sure. So the Steady State is a group of veterans of the national security world, um,
0: including the intelligence community, who that uh, that we need a change in administration. That President Trump is not emulating the values of you know our democratic values. And so this group wrote a letter, um, an open letter endorsing Vice President Biden for President of the United States in the twenty twenty election. But this is really a group that, as the name would imply, really kind of rejects the idea of the deep state and really views our career civil servants as an asset to international security arena and, and as the stability, really, behind changing administrations, the hallmark of our democracy. It's a great organization.
1: Thank you. And, and to that, I think as a WCAPS member and as we're looking at, you know, women of color advancing peace and security, that's very broad for us, but absolutely you know, we're looking at what the future holds in terms of diversity and inclusion. It's definitely kind of a hot button, hot button issue at the moment. But we talked about this a little bit briefly, but before we got on on camera. But it's absolutely imperative for us as a nation to look at diverse solutions to our national security problems and issues. So I think, again, thank you both. We'll get into some of the more uh, specific questions in a moment. But you know, thank you for joining us, and we're really excited. So I know I talked a little bit briefly about both of your careers and some of the more, I guess, pointed pieces of uh, of them. But if you don't mind, and Rain, if you don't mind starting, can you tell us a little bit about your path to the intelligence community? I mean, again, WCAPS has members that range, you know, some are still in college. (laughs) I was going to say just recently graduated, but some are still in college. The others that are, you know, former SCSs. But what does that career path, what did that career path look for you? Thank you. I think I need to
2: start with sort of what drove my interest in the intelligence community. I grew up as a child of Holocaust survivors. So I've always had an abiding interest in sort of what happens in society to point societies in good or evil directions. And so as a undergraduate at college, I studied history and was very intrigued by modern Chinese history, which ended up becoming my specialty. And unsure of what path I would take um, You have to remember that back when I was in college, I had my parents' friends ask me if I was going to Cornell to get my MRS degree. Mm -hmm. There was really not a broad range of career options for women. Mm -hmm. And I was encouraged to get my teacher certification because that was the most common career path for women. So I was kind of at a crossroads when I graduated, wondering whether to go to law school or, you whatever, go to graduate school. I took a year off and decided to teach English as a second language in Taiwan. And I did, I had studied Chinese for a few years in college. This was, you know, pre-internet days. So it was kind of a, it was like going to outer space, basically. (laughs) I mean, it was too expensive to call home. It was a completely different culture. You know, you, you wrote letters that took five or seven days to get to, you know, the U.S. and another five days to get back to you. So you're really on your own. And so it was a a big adventure for me. And I think the thing I learned most there was uh, to have confidence that I could achieve just about anything. And I came back and went to graduate school in international affairs with a specialization in modern Chinese history. And then I was looking at various options I had been interested in foreign affairs and so I looked at sort of the usual suspects the State Department NSA the CIA and you know I landed at the CIA for a variety of reasons and once there in those days like uh, the I started there in 1979 so this was a few years after the Church Commission report which identified a lot of illegal behaviors of the CIA in the u.s domestic spying and the like and they' were, At the time, the CIA had a very bad reputation, and I thought, well, the only way to change an organization was from within. So I thought, I'm going to be this warrior. I'll go into the CIA and, you know, be that bench of people to change the agency. And when I got there, I found it was a much more diverse place in political thinking, Uh, not so much diversity in the way we think of it today, but... Um, it wasn 't a bunch of fascists, basically, and the year that I was hired, it was one of those boom years you know hiring is in a boom and bust cycle in the government, depending on budgets and you go for long times when there are no budgets to hire, and then you get this opening so I happened to get in during a boom year, and a lot of people that were hired my year were also people who had been opposed to the u s involvement in Vietnam and you know were more liberal than you know hollywood would would make out so it was a more collegial environment than, or hospitable environment than I thought. And I, I found that, you know, the expectations I had of working there were, were quite different. And, and I had a number of different assignments. Um, CIA is a big place. I would encourage people to think beyond the, the classic, you can be an analyst or you can be an a spy, an operative. There are HR officers that are needed. There are logistics officers. There are finance officers. There are Weatherman, there are SNT specialists today, much more than when I was there. Cyber experts and cybersecurity experts. So, I mean, there's you can have multiple careers at the CIA. I, I worked a number of different national security issues, moved around a lot in the course of my career. I had the opportunity to do policy rotations, and. You know, probably one of the most interesting opportunities was managing in various capacities the President's Daily Briefing Book staff, uh, which we could get at some other, uh, maybe at, at later yes, in the definitely, in the, and and briefing uh, President Bush was a really fascinating experience that I wish I'd had earlier in my career. For me,
1: for now. <laughs> so you mentioned opening, kind of opening the aperture to to view someone's potential role within the IC to be everything from, like you said, logistics, HR, cybersecurity. What are some of the like soft skills or, and I'm gonna ask you the same question, Katrina, soft skills or special qualities that you think globally someone that's working within this environment would need to have?
2: Yeah, um, I'd like to speak a little bit from the standpoint of an analyst, like what kind of soft skills you need, but some of these will apply to others. I mean, the first thing I would say is teamwork. You know, there really is very little that you do as a single analyst without input from others. What you produce is really a corporate product, and that corporate product involves input from other analysts working the same issues or similar uh, issues in different disciplines. You need to have a, a logical analytic mind that can articulate the assumptions that underpin your argument rank order the sort of probable outcomes and be open to outcomes you haven't thought about that other people raise, consider outlier evidence, not just like when you're in college and you're writing a paper and you have a theme, you kind of pick the things that back up your argument and you don't really pay much attention to things that don't back up your argument. You can't really do an intelligence analysis. You have to consider all the outlier evidence. Strong writing and briefing skills are important, and also kind of a basic understanding that your job is not to recommend policy, but to help policymakers navigate a very dangerous world by identifying points of U.S. leverage to promote our interests and hinder our adversaries' interests. The other thing I would say to kind of prepare is you should In addition to whatever subject matter expertise you have, and sometimes that will include a language skill, sometimes it won't, try to develop some interdisciplinary capabilities of your own. Like at least be intellectually, if not fluent and knowledgeable of international economics, of I don't know, comparative politics, Mm -hmm. Uh, being able to look at, you know, if you're a country analyst or an analyst of a revolutionary state, how how did re- what's the life cycle of a revolutionary state in other countries that have undergone similar experiences? So, you know, don't define yourself very narrowly. And then I guess the maybe because I'm deep down a fairly insecure person, I would encourage people to push themselves beyond their comfort level. When I was asked to brief President Bush, I really was thinking I would say no. Because, not because I had any bad feelings about him. You know, I thought it would be a great honor to brief any president, but I was really not sure I was up for it, honestly. And, um, you know, I pushed myself and I was really glad I did. And I, and I think we tend to, a lot of times women more so than men tend to limit themselves. Even when they write a resume that, that or apply for a job, they'll find the things that the experience they they have, but then they'll look at the things they don't have and like, Oh, I can't apply for that. I don't have, I can't check that little, you know, requirement. And and men don't think about that. They just go for it and say, Well, I don't have that requirement, but here's why all these other requirements make up for it. So I mean, I would just in terms of soft skills, I I would say don't underestimate yourself.
1: I like that. That perseverance. That's that's important. So okay, Katrina, I am flipping it to you. And and if you could also help or elaborate on on that transition, I think, and I say this kind of having a little snippet into your background of that private sector to public. And you truly made a transition. So, you know, could you tell us again, your path to the intelligence community, but also, you know, if you're looking to suggest or or any recommendations for somebody that's making a similar transition, you know, whether they're already in, whether they're already a civil servant or their uniform personnel right now, whatever those things may be, could you also weave that in a little too?
0: Sure. So my sort of claim to fame is that I was Barack Obama's paralegal before he ran for Senate and I got my start actually, you know, Working first as the paralegal, and then my first job after that was as um, his first hire for a Senate campaign. And then then I went to law school, which I didn't like for a variety of reasons that I'm happy to elaborate on. But then uh, he decided to run for president, and I was thinking to myself, wow, I'm probably never going to know someone who's running for president again. But it turns out that I was not like all of the types of people that generally are attracted to campaign work. And I found myself really wanting to be in the more kind of apolitical. World of the intelligence community, and so I became a career civil servant after having served on the campaign, which is not something that really anyone did. But I continue to feel like there are, it is a wonderful place to work for a variety of reasons. One of those reasons, as you as you heard from Rena, but also is, is evident in my own path, is that there are so many different ways to build a career and stay within the overall stability of the intelligence community. Um, I went from working in the public affairs office, managing the press, to working on Gitmo policy, Guantanamo Bay, um, negotiating the transfer of Gitmo detainees, and advancing then President Obama's um, executive order on closing Gitmo, which uh, that still hasn't actually occurred. But we did get a lot of people out of there and then I went over to the National Counterterrorism Center, where I supported the director in a front office role. That sort of means at the, um, you know, right in the office where the decisions are being made, and you get a lot of visibility into policy that way. And then, sort of using that front row seat as leverage, I ended up being asked to go to the White House to manage the response to the Snowden disclosures. And then I did a rotation to the Department of Justice. And so, I mean, a lot of very different roles. But one thing that's different between Rena and I is that she worked as an analyst in, and has an analytic background and I did it. And so some of the things I'm going to point out are both different, are different in a couple of ways, um, but also overlapping in a couple of ways, because it's true that um, a lot of things that make you a great analyst make you a great intelligence officer more broadly. And and I think that's an important thing to, to realize. And so there are a few things that I think are um, really great skills and that I looked for when I was hiring. So I did a lot of hiring both in when I was in the intelligence community and now in my current role. One is curiosity about the world, just pure and simple. If you're the kind of person who's leafing through the newspaper or scrolling through the news as we do more commonly these days, and you find that there are just articles that you can't skip because you want to know more about them, that is actually a really important signal about where your interests lie. And the kind of people that, that tend to do well in the intelligence community are the ones who find those, the world section to be really interesting and who stop and read that stuff. So if that's you, there may be a role for you in the IC. People who are interested in the truth of a thing and not just a perspective, one person's perspective, another person's perspective, but people who sort of want to see it from multiple sides. If you're the kind of person who hears something and, and immediately thinks of the counter argument, you might be an intelligence officer people who are driven by a larger sense of mission. So when I'm interviewing people, and they're saying, I this, I that, and they're all of their questions are about what's in it for them, that tends to be at odds with what it's like to be in the intelligence community. The intelligence community is very much a place where mission drives a lot of what you do, you are, you are often thinking about how you contribute, as opposed to what you get. And that's not a perfect fit for some people. Some people who have a very kind of entrepreneurial mentality may find it stifling to be in a world where they're always contributing to some other mission. But but if you are the kind of person who thinks of teens and thinks of things that are bigger than yourself as being really appealing, you might be an intelligence officer. Trust is a big thing in the IC and and some of that goes without saying, but I think one of the questions that I often ask during interviews or used to when I was interviewing for the IC is what evidence do you have in your life that other people trust you? And I think that it's worth thinking about how, to, how you know, anybody would answer that question. But I think, you know, people who have lots of evidence that other people trust them are often a great fit for roles in the IC because they have just innate qualities that really you know that fit well and that would make them ex- excel in the in the intelligence environment and then the last one I would point out is the ability to receive new information and change your mind and my favorite my all-time favorite question to ask um, when I interview people in the IC is when is the last what what is a matter of consequence to you that you've changed your mind about and what was the information that caused you to change your mind and I will tell you there are two kinds of people in this world. People who have an answer to that question and people who literally cannot think of a time when they've changed their mind about anything. And it's especially true in today's world where we are kind of, you know, social media and everything else is calming yeah, itself down that we think. But being in the intelligence community in many ways means being willing to challenge everything. And, and to not get dug in on the what you think, um, but to be able to receive new information and re-examine everything in light of it. I mean, people in the IC obviously have very deeply held beliefs, so I don't want to suggest that that's not the case. But, but I think that just being intellectually flexible is a really important thing. And to be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why diversity in the IC is so important. Because it turns out older, whiter, male or people don't always have the intellectual flexibility that you would want in an organization that is responsible for for being able to absorb new information and allow it to change their worldview. So I'll stop there. Happy to dive in wherever.
1: No, you're you're picking up on a few things that we will dive into a little bit further, but thank you. I think even some of those interview questions as someone that I, I don't see myself going on an interview anytime soon, but It's a good way to kind of do an azimuth check on on are you being fulfilled, right? I mean, as just about everyone in WCAPS and probably, you know, most people that you all come into contact with that work with the U.S. government in some capacity, again, whether you're military service, a contractor, whatever, oftentimes I've found myself telling, you know, people in my own personal network and professional network, you know, we serve a greater mission, right? Sometimes you can definitely get bogged down with the PowerPoints and the, you know, the things like that, but it is truly, you know, back to Reina, your point, whether you're doing logistics, HR, you know, facilities management, whatever. It, I think most of us, right, appreciate that that PowerPoint or whatever is serving a greater mission. So that's, those are, those are good, like I said, just kind of Uh, questions I think everyone can kind of ask themselves whether they're going on an interview or looking to form a career within the IC or the DOD, you know, at all. It also leads me to another question that we had. You were talking about trust and some of the interpersonal things that are really important. I say this because I often have, oftentimes have a lot of people that will try to add me on LinkedIn or any sort of social media. And I think coming from the types of backgrounds that we have, there's a different way to approach anyone in the IC or the DOD. So what are some kind of tips and tricks, and I'll, I'll start with you Katrina, and then I'll go back to you Raina, that you guys could offer if someone is seeking to uh, link up with you all, or you know, a, a mentor, or somebody they saw speak at a conference, you know, one of my big things is don't just add people on social media, right? Put in, put in where you met me, because if, if I've never met you before, I'm not gonna accept the invitation. And it sounds so so small, but that's truly just one of those small things that I feel like everyone in this industry does. So, you know, again, I think I said I'll start with you, Raina. What what is a nuance? Katrina. Did I say Katrina? Sorry, sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, what is what are one of those things or a couple of those things that? Yeah. You you know, kind of offer
0: up? So, I mean, first, it's actually a great point that I haven't really thought of explaining to someone before, but you're absolutely right. So I do press now. So sometimes I'm on TV and I will get these totally random people who will try to friend me on Facebook. And, you know, for me, I, social media is very much, I think some of it's generational, but I have a very different view of public private. And I always tell the millennials that work for me and Gen Z now that work for me. Like I have a different hierarchy about the way that I treat social media than they do. And so I'm very upfront. I do not friend anyone on Facebook that I don't already have a personal relationship with. And I don't, I don't allow anyone who currently works with me to be in that space. I sometimes will let them in after I've left a role, Mm -hmm. but it's a very structured thing. And I think that's probably more true than not for people in the intelligence community that they set real boundaries around communicating over social media. Um, LinkedIn is probably the exception. I think more of us are comfortable communicating through that route. And I I do have people that reach out to me on LinkedIn and I frequently will respond or give them advice or whatever through that because that's more of a professional outlet for me. I'm now on Twitter, which I only uh, got on once I left government. And I have to tell you that is a wild experience. Uh, and very new to me. But in general, I would advise everybody to think about social media and their professional life in a public-private way. Um, I think if you're the kind of person who's well suited to be in the intelligence community, I think you have to be willing to sort of compartmentalize what you share with the world in a way that other people don't think about. Part of that is because you know it's it's just wise to do it. Part of it is because You become more aware about the ways that other people are using that information for purposes that you wouldn't love if you were more willing of it. And and part of it is because you don't know what your next job is going to be. And you don't want to limit your opportunities to do things by being out there in the public domain in a way that is incompatible with certain roles and and, and opportunities. So I'll stop there. I'm curious what Rena has to say.
2: Well, like you, I didn't do any social media until I retired. Now, of course, that was 10 years ago, and there's more social media now than there was then. But I think one of the challenges for people who work at the CIA and others who are in classified professions or working with classified information is there's a security risk to being too out there on social media. So discretion is is really the key. You can be on social media, but you don't wanna share information about what you do. And as you develop contacts with, even if you're an open employee, I was an open employee all my life, but when I traveled overseas for safety, I had to travel under a light cover. Well, you know, you don't wanna be identified as the CIA person in, you know, Egypt or Pakistan or whatever country you might be traveling to for, for business. So, and even on vacations, I mean, you know, you don't want it to be known to, you know, potentially hostile services or even friendly services, you know, that might bug your hotel room or, you know, do things that you just don't think about as a, you know, college student or, but there are real security threats out there. So I think social media is, is a challenge. Um, And that may be one of the things that you have to come to terms with when you join the intelligence community is there are some things you'll have to give up or tone down at a minimum. You know, one might argue that having no presence on social media would also be kind of a call you out. Um, so, you know, you might, you have to strike a balance, but I do think it could, if you're too out there in public and me- in, in social media, then it could limit your opportunities to take overseas assignments. And and also the other issue is, you know, one of the strong cultural norms in the intelligence community, certainly it was true at the CIA and why, you know, this notion of a deep state is so, such anathema to me, is that there's a strong cultural norm not to bring politics into the workplace. Most of the time, I didn't know whether my colleagues were Republicans or Democrats. I mean, there's obviously the Hatch Act. But which prevents you from politically campaigning. But beyond the Hatch Act, there's just a formal norm that you don't you pr- you present truth to power. You don't color code it based on your politics or whatever. So this idea that if you're out on social media and you're you know and your your personal views are out there about you know hating this president or you're pontificating about X or Y policy that is not a professional position you can have. And, you know, back to the steady state, I mean, it it was a huge decision for many of us to actually go out publicly and take a stand during this election because it goes against what we were professionally trained to do. But, you know, we considered this to be such unusual times, honestly, that you know, the, the people who signed up to Steady State really felt a moral obligation to speak out. And most of them are no longer actively working. They're retired from the intelligence community. So um, that gives them, a, you know, added cover, one, one would say.
1: So I think you both have talked about the diversity in political opinion within the IC. I'm a big believer that diversity just kind of is the, I hate to say a hot button, but right, a very prominent issue right now is, you know, race and gender, but right. But diversity absolutely includes political opinion sometimes. And again, I do a lot more work in the DOD. It includes diversity in in the services. It can include socioeconomic diversity. It's, you know, able, all sorts of things encompass diversity. So, and we talked about it a, a little bit in the beginning, but can you explain and, and elaborate more on how and why the intelligence community would and will benefit from continued diversity initiatives within the, within the community? How, how, and besides the obvious, right? Differing opinions and everyone, you know, but what are the true gems and things that I think everyone can see that diversity will be able to inject into the IC? So. I'll go back and start with you again, Katrina. But, you know, if if you could kind of give us your take on that, that'd be awesome.
0: Well, diversity was always a priority for me in hiring when I was hiring the IC. It's a priority for me now um, in the role that I have at the Center for American Progress. I, you know, the reasons why are sort of like so varied that it's hard to capture them. But, um, you know, I'm a person who grew up in a housing project. So, socio, so, you know, I often people would find myself in situations where people would make assumptions about the way that I grew up or, you know, what kind of life I led just based on, you know, maybe the way that I talk or what outfit I'm wearing or, or, or what have you. And I would often be aware of the assumptions that they were making in that moment, whether it was about, you know, having student loans or, you know, getting married and having people have an assumption that you're going to have a big wedding or you know any any of that kind of stuff and you know it it impacts it, it's a thread that pulls through every fiber of your being so there's no it's not just the contributions that you make at a meeting it's not just the the different way that you see the world it's it's in many in many ways it's it's about the types of solutions you propose and the outcomes that are achieved by having you at the table and so it's very For me, kind of existential. We have, you know, the IC is is unfortunately an older, whiter, maler workplace than a lot of others. And one of the challenges that that I confronted when I was deliberately seeking to change that is actually that our applicant pool is older, whiter, maler Hmm. too. And so one of the things that we did at ODI when I was there is we started going to recruit at annual meetings of, you know, whether it's a professional organization, the NAACP, the there's a American Association of Asian American Professionals. And, and we would go to their kind of career fair portion of their events and and just talk to people. And I was really stunned. So I went um, to one and it was the, it was the Asian American Professionals. And I was stunned by how many people walked by and I would try to talk to them or whatever. And they would just be like, Oh, I'm an HR person. Like, I'm not a spy, and I'd be like we have we have hr people we have we have i t people we have and so part of the problem is that they don't see themselves in us, and that was that really changed the way that I saw what the challenges are and what the solutions are because I was like, oh, we need to do a better job of making this world more accessible so people see themselves in it. I will also say that some of the best people that I ever hired, and i view I view my hiring as my legacy in the i c because the one thing that outlives you more than anything else are the people that you bring on board and that you mentor. And some of the best, most, um, you know, in fact, one of the PDB uh, briefers of today, um, to, to Rena's point, is someone that, that I hired who's a person of color and who has just excelled at absolutely everything that she's done. So, I mean, it's not diver- diversity for diversity's sake, is something that I think we tried at some point in the past, like as a society. And that misses the point. It's really about like improving the way that the IC produces what it does, because you cannot do that in a in a monolithic sort of uniform way. I mean, the the world just doesn't work
1: that way, and the results don't don't support it. I, I liked what you were saying, almost of raising the mirror, right? Like it's for someone to feel like they belong. You need to see yourself in that organization, right? So to And some of that does absolutely come with, you know, seeing other people that look like you in power and, you know, representation matters and, you know, all, all senses of that, but to, and this is part of the reason why this podcast and this, you know, we're we're having this discussion is that people realize that there is a space for them. Right. And and oftentimes you don't realize that until someone tells you. So thank you. There is a
0: place for you. Like that is the one thing. There is absolutely a place for you. And you will make there. Not only is there a place for you, you will make a contribution that that will actually benefit the country that you love, the team that you're on, all of that stuff. And so it can be very rewarding. Um,
1: It has been for me. No, thank you. Katrina, same question, and adding this piece to it because I think Katrina, you already you already spoke to it. But so, what are the advantages you see in that diversity, and also? what are some efforts that you see being made to promote that kind of diversity and inclusion?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Katrina captured most of the advantages. I mean, I would just say operationally at like the CIA, white men stick out in many parts of the world, you know, and, and also our adversaries underestimate women. So having uh, female and minority case officers uh, working overseas either in official or non-official capacity is a great advantage. So there's, I mean, there's a real benefit, a tangible benefit. And I think the diversity of views and life experiences uh, was well uh, described by Katrina. I'll also, I I would also like to add that the notion that it's hard to get minority applicants is a real one. I, I think Hollywood plays a part in this. You know, the CIA especially is, you know, portrayed as this evil organization and there's, oh, they're always trying to do nasty things like overthrow this government or that government. And I'm not saying that's never happened, but but I think, I think it it tends to, to, instead of encouraging the importance of mission in the intelligence community, it raises sort of people's moral barriers. Mm. And, you know, when I, I think about you know, we talked a little bit earlier about some of the things you have to give up with respect to social media and 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 other things. I, I mean, I think you do, when you think about working in the intelligence community in the CIA, you do have to think about what kind of moral complexities in, are involved in the job. Because there are going to be times when you know, you may not be comfortable with a certain operation that's going forward or whatever. So there is that aspect that has to be considered. But I think on the whole, you know, the importance of the mission in terms of protecting the U.S. is is a really important one. But, but if you read John Carre, <laughs> I think he probably captures the moral complexities of espionage Better than anybody else, and so if you want to get a feel for that, I would definitely encourage reading John Lecaray. But in terms of what people are doing now to promote diversity, I mean, there are sort of the obvious things like trying to recruit from historically black colleges, expanding the recruiting base beyond the sort of the elite white school, you know, uh, Ivy League schools that has, you know, were certainly the recruitment base in the fifties. There are also a lot more efforts to keep. To help minorities succeed once they arrive, a number of affinity groups, uh, training programs, and I would definitely encourage people to identify early on a mentor that they can trust. Could be a minority, maybe it won't be a minority, but somebody that can give them frank career advice. There are always going to be organizational cultural barriers to your success, whether you're white or minority. But minorities don't necessarily, you know, the white men get to talk about that stuff in the men's room or, you know, in the gym or whatever. The minorities don't have a place to talk about that. And so they have to do it in more formal mentoring arrangements. So I would definitely encourage that. I know for myself, I had, I mean, these are, you know, not huge obstacles, but it took me a long time. I came from, I'm from New York originally. I have a very blunt approach to engaging in argumentation. (laughs) And and the analytic world at the CIA was more introverted. And, you know, if you disagreed with someone, you you would probably want to say it in a way that was very understated. Like, I wonder if you should consider this side of the argument. (laughs) Whereas I was more of the, you know, I think that's totally wrong. (laughs) And it took me a long time to figure out that that approach was not gonna succeed and not get me ahead. I mean, those are minor little cultural things. There were bigger ones, you know, when when I uh, had my first child and went part-time, I wanted to continue being uh, being able to do all types of intelligence analytics, uh, current intelligence, long-term research, whatever. And my office director, you know, felt that I should only do long-term research because they couldn't count on me to be there at a moment's notice never having asked me whether I could make that arrangement, right? And when I had a, a performance review, the comment was, you know, the problem with Rena is she wants to have it all. That was feedback from my, my so I mean, looking at that today, now this was wow. in the 1980s, but looking at that today, you would say, wow, did people actually say things like that? This was a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so I'm just saying that because there are going to be cultural roadblocks that will that you will address and they can be s- simple things like knowing when you it's okay to turn down an assignment you know mm-hmm. at the c i you have to be all about mission you know whatever whatever they ask you to do you salute and you do it but there, you know so you have to sort of get a sense of like if you really don't want to do something because you know you're you're going to fail at it you know when do you who's got advice of saying yeah you can turn it down and ironically <laughs> the way i ended up first working on the pdb staff was because I turned down an assignment that I was being railroaded into that I was totally, I knew I would totally not do well, but they wanted somebody in this position. And, you know, I was sort of available and I managed to kind of turn that around, but just knowing when to do that, when to say, I can't, I can't take this TDY for X, Y, and Z reasons, but I'm happy to do something else. uh, That's an important
1: asset. So, and this is, this is our last question. So I'll I think I'll start with you, Raina, and then go to you, Katrina. So as we're talking, we talked a little bit about the mission of the steady state, and we're talking about diversity and inclusion within the IC. What do you think, I mean, again, this is an election year, so what do you think the future holds for those that are looking to continue or begin or transition their careers into the IC? I mean, and and this isn't, I don't think any of us have a belief that, you know, these jobs are going to just dry up and disappear, but as we're looking at the, you know, State of the Union, you know, our, both our allies and our adversaries and everything else that, you know, if you, if you to your point, Katrina, if you open up your phone and start scrolling on the news, right, what do we think that the future holds for women of color, people of color, right, minor, all of these different groups that we're talking about, what does the IC hold, or what does the future look like in the next, whatever, five to ten years? Oh, was that for me first? Please. Thank you.
2: So, I I mean, I think the short answer is that it all depends who wins the election, right? I mean, this is a very consequential year for us to be out there voting. Uh, One of my biggest fears is the extent to which the intelligence community has been politicized under President Trump by removing IGs from and replacing them with political hacks, by creating an atmosphere in which presenting information on Russian intelligence activities in the U.S. is considered a personal attack against the president. I mean, there are lots of other reasons why the election is consequential, but in terms of what it will mean for the future of the intelligence community, and and, and indeed for the safety of our country, is, is really up in the air right now. And you can't expect a president who has made his name by encouraging racial divisions to be one who will encourage diversity in intelligence community thinking. I mean, he wants the intelligence community to tell him what he wants to hear, which cannot be a good thing for national security. So unfortunately, you know, I I think there are real questions about the future of this country beyond the future of the intelligence community. And I would just encourage people who do love our country and love the principles it's founded on to make sure they're registered to vote, to vote, and to vote blue. Yeah, I... Couldn't agree more with everything that
0: Rena said. I think, unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on your perspective. I think that, you know, people of color are the difference this election. I really do. Like, you know, people show up and turn out, we're going to have one outcome, and if people don't, we're going to have another outcome. And as somebody who watched sort of the enthusiasm, you know, I was on, I was involved in Obama 08. There was never a time, I mean, I don't even remember Feeling the way I felt on election night in Grand Park, and just the whole experience of it, and I think for a lot of people they want to feel like that again, and they don't feel that way right now. And I get that; I don't feel that way right now either. But you need to make decisions with your mind, not your heart, this time. That's basically the way that it is. And 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 I think you know I think it's tremendously important. But to, to contrast, kind of the worst case scenario with what I think the future looks like in a Biden administration. I spent, I met a think tank, a progressive think tank, so I spent a lot of time thinking about exactly that question. And I'll tell you what I think the the future holds. I think there is a renewed commitment to trust and integrity in our national security institutions. I think there is an executive order probably on day one, reestablishing some norms around what it means, you know, to be a political in the intelligence community. I think that there's intentional and thoughtful human capital initiatives that are designed to increase in diversity throughout the executive branch, not just in the national security world. I think there are, you know, there's a renewed commitment to diplomacy first as a tool of foreign policy and not military first, mm-hmm. which I think would be for to everyone's benefit. We all win when we resolve conflicts with handshakes instead of with guns. And so I, I have... I think that there is a future for people who want to to commit to rebuilding our institutions and being part of that. There's a real opportunity, and I would argue a critical importance. I mean, you look at places like the State Department, the intelligence community. They're they're they've been really hollowed out. There are a lot of positions that have never been filled. There are, and there's a tremendous opportunity to have an impact, and not just to come in at the bottom and tinker around the edges, but to be you know, the mortar in in the brick, you know, and I think, I don't know that there's people, jo- there was a huge wave of hiring in the intelligence community after 9-11, as people might imagine, there was this, you know, coming together and this, this sense mm-hmm. of purpose. I actually think that if Biden's elected, you're going to see a similar thing happen, but for a different, but equally compelling purpose to rebuild, and re- and sort of reimagine what our institutions can be. And I'll tell you what, if, if people of color are not part of that, it won't work. It has to include them. So I'm hopeful that the people who are, who are listening and watching this feel enthusiastic about the potential for themselves to be a part of, of that rebuilding. I want to invite you to think about it because I think it's a, a, it's a tremendously rewarding career it's also a stable career, which for people who grew up the way I did, is, is, is it has its own advantages. And, you know, and I think it could lead to, to tremendous things. You also don't have to stay in forever. You can go in and build a career and then do what I did and take a step outside and go into the private sector. So it's, I think it's a, it, I think it would be wonderful. And if any of uh, your listeners or viewers want to reach out, my, my LinkedIn is open. Don't Facebook
1: me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And, and thank you to both of you. I think, you know, it took us some time to get all this scheduled, but I think we're right on time. You know, as we're seeing diversity and diversity initiatives kind of get held down, if you will, or, or, or not, not encouraged <laughs> right now. I, I think we, being those that are, you know, existing in these spaces and moving in these spaces every day owe it to those, you know, that are coming behind us or, or beside us to open those doors and, and give them a leg up and any sort of insight that we can. So thank you again to both of you for taking the time to both tell us how you got to where you are and all the different kind of nuances within your careers, as well as some of the lessons learned that you've <laughs> gathered um, as well. And, and I think you're right. I think you both are spot on. I think this election will definitely be one that sets that could set us on a new path and one that you know opens the doors and shows that additional diversity. Uh, again, as I said before, national security is important to everyone, it is, and it is a diverse problem that is owed a diverse solution. So, uh, thank you again, and uh, I'll give last words. Is there anything else you guys would like to say? Well, I've got one thing, which
0: is that I, I I was thinking just as you were wrapping up about Rena and her role in breaking down some barriers for the rest of us. I mean. It was interesting to me to hear her story and to think about the differences in my own career. Differences that were, in many ways, it's easier now, and it's easier because we are standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, so thank you to you, Rena, for for the role that you played in that, and you know, looking forward to to the folks who come in next having an easier time of it because of those efforts.
2: Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm standing on the shoulders of many other women who came before me as well, so. Yeah, I mean it, it's true the first time I walked into a briefing and I was the only woman in the room that was kind of eye-opening. But things have changed a lot. I mean now, you know, I think there's probably 50-50 in, in terms of leadership positions, women and men in the IC. Yeah. It's better.
0: It's just but but for many of the listeners on this call, it is true that that they would probably join up and be the only person of color in the room, at least in the beginning, until things start to change. And and I think you know having been the only woman in the room it is an isolating experience i don't think it's the same as what it's like being the only person of color in the room but but the only way to change that is to change that <laughs> you know so i think that there's going to be some tremendous opportunities to do it and no one better than you
2: i agree and that's what we're working towards
1: so again thank you thank you so much